Lord, I just pray tonight you would give me the words to say, that your word would be open to us tonight. May we know your word better as we study it, and Lord, as we think about the reality of the fact that Jesus is the only one who can claim to be your son by nature, by birthright, by his very life. He is your son, and only through him can we claim sonship. We're reminded that our condition in the world before Christ was pitiable. It was of the world. It was, according to this passage, satanic. We were children of the devil before you came. Lord, I pray that you would Remind us of the seriousness of what that means. What it means for this world and people who don't believe in you. And would it remind us of the great glory that we get to be called your sons because of what your son did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good to see you all tonight. Hey, everyone on Zoom. Good to see you. Um, tonight we'll be finishing up John 8. I just want to say, first of all, thank you, Aaron. Appreciate that, man. It was great. Loved it. Um, tonight we'll be finishing up John 8. And, uh, the second half of John 8 is, uh, intense. Jesus has some harsh words for his, his opponents. Words that, uh, really lead them on the path to wanting to kill him. And you'll understand when you hear what he says why it's so offensive, as it would be to any of us who were to hear this. But as Jesus says, he speaks the truth. So tonight, this, uh, this sermon I titled, Two Fathers. Two Fathers. Would have been good for last week, probably, Father's Day, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm just following where the text leads us. So tonight we have two fathers. Jesus is going to talk about the difference between his father and the father of these Jews in the crowd, and which by extension is all of those who are of the world, their father. And he's going to make a contrasting uh, comparison between the two. But I remember... Where we were last week, it ended with this fact that Jesus had said, I am the light of the world. He'd gone through that whole passage and, and talked about testifying and that his father testified of who he was. And then it said at the end in verse 30 that many came to believe in him because of what he had said. That's where our passage ended last week. Many came to believe in him. And this week it's going to start with Jesus speaking specifically to those who claimed to believe in him. We have to realize that's the context because this is not Jesus speaking to anyone in the crowd. It's not sp Jesus speaking just generically to those who are opposing him. This is Jesus speaking to those who are claiming to believe we have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus is going to say this to people who are claiming to believe in him. 
verse 31, where our passage starts. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. It's a very famous verse. Many people know that verse. The truth setting us free. Jesus is talking about himself. Jesus is the truth, according to the Gospel of John. We'll see later on he'll say that several times. But here he gives an analogy. He's going to explain what he's saying about the truth making you free in terms of what he's going to get to in a few minutes. Uh, we'll get to is that he, the Son makes you free. Right? He's using those two terms as synonymous terms. The truth, which is Jesus, makes you free. The Son, which is Jesus, makes you free. But it's interesting, this, this truth giving freedom, it, it seems to irk the Jews who hear him say it, because their response is this. They answer Jesus, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Their response is to say, what are you talking about? We have never been slaves. We don't need freedom. We already are free. We already are free. Why would we need freedom? We are free people. Now, on the face of it, it seems kind of preposterous for them to say that. Because if you know Israel's history, what world power weren't they enslaved to? They were enslaved to Egypt. They were enslaved to Assyria. They were enslaved to Babylon. They were enslaved to Persia. They were enslaved to Greece. They were enslaved to Rome. So on its face, it's kind of a preposterous statement. But the way Jesus interprets what they're saying seems to be that they understand Jesus a little more clearly than it looks from what they're saying. They seem to be saying that they are not politically free, but that they are spiritually free. And Jesus is going to attack that, that belief that they have, that they are spiritually free. And they say, we are spiritually free. Why can they claim that? Well, because they know the law of God. right? They can claim to be freer than anyone else because they know the true God. They know his laws. And they say, because of the very fact that we are descendants of Abraham, we are by nature free. We have been freed from the spiritual bondage and, and all of the things that the other nations of the world are under. We are free from because we're Jewish. We're Abraham's descendants. We are not slaves. And Jesus is going to say, no, you're exactly wrong. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And then he's going to give this explanation. He's talking about relationships within the household. So he says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. He's making an argument for a Roman culture in which slaves were commonplace, right? What Jesus is saying is, the son 
when he is under the father of a household, they're part of that house forever. They bear the name of the father of the house, and therefore they have all the rights, all the inheritance, all the place and standing in the house that is entitled to a son. Now the slave may be in the house. The slave may operate in the home. He may do work there. He may be present, but he does not have the inheritance nor the rights. He can be sold. He can be given away. Anything that the household wants to do to the slave, they can do. It's within their power in the Roman culture, right? Jesus says, the slave doesn't remain forever, but the son does. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. What's he saying? He's saying the son of the house, that one who has all the rights and prerogatives and all the name and the power can free the slave of the household. Right? He can give them freedom. The son has that power to say that this slave of his can be free. You know, sometimes in, in the Roman culture, sons, children of a household, and slaves would grow up together like friends, right? They would be friends. And it's not unknown to, to you know, our study of history that sons would grow up with their friends who were slaves and free them. That's kind of in essence what this passage is talking about. Not necessarily the friendship, but the idea that the son can free who he decides to free in his own household. Why? Because he has the father's authority. So he's saying, listen, if the son makes you free then you're truly free. Jesus is saying, I am the son. You are slaves. And I have to say this because this is important. In this specific passage, we have to come to the point and recognize that we are not the son in this passage as believers. This is uniquely Jesus. This is uniquely Jesus. We don't get to sit here and say, yeah, yeah we can free everyone. Because we're just like the son because we became children of God. No, we were the slaves. That's the believers. Believers were the slaves who have become freed. The only one who's the son is Jesus. The son of the household can free the slaves. And those who've come to believe in Jesus have been freed. Jesus recognizes what our culture and what this world does not, which is there is a slavery, a deeper slavery that is worse than political slavery, that is worse than economic slavery, that is worse than all the forms of evil, and they are legitimately evil. Slavery that we can impose on other humans, but the deeper slavery is enslavement to sin. It's bondage to sin, spiritual slavery that we cannot free ourselves from. We are enslaved to it. Only the Son can free us from that slavery. Jesus goes on in verse 37. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. So he admits, yeah, by, by birth, 
by genetics, you are the children of Abraham. You are Jewish. I'll give you that. By sheer descent, if that's the only thing that matters, yeah, you can call yourselves Abraham's children. But there's something more important. And the principle Jesus is going to bring up is the idea of parentage. That children are like their parents. Right? That's the way the Lord has made this world. It's the way he created in Genesis that, that anything, whether it be trees or plants or animals or humans, make similar things. They, they make like kind, right? According to their likeness is what it says. And that's true of parents and children, that the children are like their parents. And Jesus is going to say, yeah, maybe you're Abraham's descendants by genetics. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Right? Jesus says, okay, I'll grant you. You're, you're like Abraham in the sense that you were genetically descended from him. But no, actually, you have another father. And, and Jesus just says that. He leaves it at that. He doesn't say anymore. He doesn't say who that father is. He just says, no, no, no. You're like your father, just like I'm like my father. And because you are of your father, you can't hear my words. Because you'd have to be of my father to understand what I'm saying to you. There's the two fathers. We don't know who the second father is. Clearly, Jesus' father is God, and we haven't yet heard who this second father is. But we know there's two, and they're different. And you act like your father. That's what Jesus is saying. The Jews responded and answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. They go back to that argument. No, we are Abraham's children. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Right? If you're Abraham's children, why don't you act like him? Why do you not think like him? Why are you doing things that he would never have done? Verse 40, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. Right? He's saying they didn't do like Abraham. They're claiming to be Abraham's children, and yet they act nothing like him. No. Again, Jesus repeats, you are doing the deeds of your father. And they say to him, they, they, it's clear they can't win this argument with Jesus about Abraham being their father, so they go on and they say, we weren't born of fornication. We have one father, God. Fine, if you won't accept Abraham as our father, surely you'll accept the fact that the Jews are God's children. The scriptures say so. That Israel is God's firstborn son. Right, it says in Exodus. And so they say, surely you can't argue with that. And Jesus says, no, no, if God were your father, you would love me. 
For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative. I didn't choose to do this, but he sent me. God sent me on this mission. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Here it's interesting. Jesus is giving us a theology lesson about the devil. He says from the beginning. Remember that how is how the Bible opens. In the beginning. He's talking about creation. Jesus is going back all the time, back to the beginning, <clears throat> back to when things first were. He says, even in those first days, Satan was a murderer. He's been a murderer from the beginning. And it makes sense of the stories of Genesis 2 and 3 and, and all what's going on in there to understand that, the, that humanity already had an enemy, didn't it? Satan, when he shows up on the scene in Genesis 3, he already is seeking to kill humanity, isn't he? He's certainly not hoping to do it good. His, his goal in Genesis 3 is to deceive and to kill. He's already an enemy from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Whenever he speaks a lie... He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Jesus is saying, don't you understand, we're, we're diametrically opposed. You are liars, I am the truth. You are murderers, I give life. And he says, you can't understand what I have to say to you because you are not of my father. No, you're of your father, who is the devil. And just like their father, they seek to murder Jesus. We don't even recognize it yet, but by the end of this chapter, we will. They're seeking to kill Jesus. And they cannot stand what Jesus has to say to them because it's the truth. Because it's the truth, they cannot stand to hear it, for they are liars, just like their father. Man, I hope if you hear that, you can understand how quickly... That would become offensive. Remember how Jesus opened this passage. He says, If you continue in my word, then you will truly be disciples. Then you will truly be disciples. For you will hear the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's a hard truth to hear. And I love... I love Jesus because in this passage particularly, you see that Jesus is not about numbers. 
man, he would have said a lot of different things if it really mattered to him how many disciples he had. Because he does not go for the flattery. He does not go for the things that are easy on the ears. Jesus cares about the, the reality, the truthfulness of people's discipleship. And so Jesus has these times where he says things that offend everyone who hears it. Because he's not concerned with how many disciples, but the reality of their discipleship. That there is genuineness and truth and depth to their faith. And Jesus has started this. Before he said any of these harsh things, he started this saying, you're going to have to continue in my word if you want to be a true disciple. And then he instantly hits them with a teaching that's hard to hear. Let's see. Let's see how genuine your discipleship is. Let's see how truthful you, want, you are when you say you want to follow me, when you want to believe in me. Jesus is concerned with whether they're truly disciples. And we already know from John 2 that it said Jesus knew the hearts of men. He already knew whether their faith was sincere and genuine or not. He could discern that. But Jesus tells them this harsh, harsh teaching. And, and of course, in our own pride and in our own humanness, uh, how could we accept a teaching like this? See, because here's the reality. In order for the Son to make you free, like He claims He will do, you have to acknowledge you're a slave first. You can't think you're not a slave and think you're free and find freedom from Jesus. You can't find freedom when you're so convinced of your own freedom, even while you're wearing the chains. And so even now in this passage, we're already seeing that Jesus opens it saying, continue in my word, and the first thing they do is fight Jesus' word. They fight Jesus' word. He says, I can make you free. And they say, we aren't slaves, Jesus. How dare you? How dare you? We've never been enslaved. We've always been spiritually free. He says, oh, if you want true freedom, the Son can set you free. We're Abraham's children. What could you offer us? He says, no, you're nothing like Abraham. We're God's children. What could you offer us? The pride of their hearts will not allow them to recognize how pitiable their condition is. Because even though they think they're free, they are slaves. Jesus has told the truth. They are slaves to their own sin, and only the Son can make them free. And even though this Son, Jesus, is their Messiah, they reject Him. They reject Him. Because His teaching is too hard to hear. In fact, Jesus has just told us they can't hear it because they're not of his father they're of their father the devil so the Jews answered him this is verse 48 
The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You can tell Jesus is getting to them, right? Because now they just resort to insults. They defame him. They slander him. Right? They slander him. And I'm sure they think, well, Jesus has been slandering us. <laughs> Maybe we should return the favor. They call him a Samaritan. Good old-fashioned racism. They hate Samaritans. So they call him a Samaritan. And they say he has a demon he must be demon-possessed, right? To claim the things that he does about the Jews. Here's what's interesting. Uh, the Jews uniformly believed they were God's children. That they were the chosen people. And to some extent, obviously, that is true. But like John 3 told us, they needed to be born from above. They needed a spiritual birth from the Holy Spirit. John 3 tells us. But here, when they hear what Jesus is saying about the, the Jews, that they've been enslaved, that they're not really Abraham's descendants, they're not really God's children. In fact, they're children of the devil. <laughs> Their assumption is, man, this is an ungodly person. He must have a demon to say these kind of terrible, <clears throat> evil things about Israel. They don't understand how right he is. And not just about their condition, but about all of ours. Where we all once were, at the minimum. Jesus answered them, said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my own glory. There is one, his father, who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. <laughs> right? Now we know that you have a demon. So Jesus goes on to say, and it's really, it's really beautiful if you think about the theology of it. Remember what we just read. The children of the devil, like their father, are murderers and liars. Jesus, like his father, is one who tells the truth and gives life. Gives life. The opposite of murder. To give life. Yeah. And Jesus, like his father, says, Hey, if you continue in my word, just like my, my, just like my father, I will give life. And they take that contemptuously, which is understandable, I guess, to some extent, isn't it? To, that you won't taste of death, you won't see death. I mean, they're clearly on a spirit, on a excuse me, on a physical level. Man, the way they're thinking about this, what are you talking about? Everyone dies, <laughs> and even today we could retort the same way, couldn't we? We're all, we're all just dying day by day, and it comes for all of us. What are you talking about? How can you even say that, Jesus, with a straight face? Death has come for every generation, and every person who's walked this earth with so few exceptions, maybe a few biblical exceptions we see. 
What, what do we make of that? Jesus is talking about a deeper reality. And, and I don't want to just spiritualize this. And I think that's a mistake we sometimes make. Jesus is clearly talking about a spiritual condition. That is true. He's clearly talking about the fact that we will not taste of spiritual death ever again if we come to believe in him and, and trust in him and stay in believing in him and persevere in that belief. We will never taste death. And he is talking about spiritual death. But man, I hope we also can recognize that Jesus speaks the truth in the sense that for the body to die is not the essence of what it means to, to live or to die, right? It's, it's, there's a life that's deeper than that. And that what Jesus says here, that you will never see death, is true. In fact, like Paul says, that the, the, you know, the instant we die, we're at home with the Lord. To be away from the body is to be home with the Lord, is what it says. Right? Paul says that. And in, in that sense, even though there may be this, this final breath, this last moment for this body, we actually don't taste death, if you believe. I, I really believe that. That this body, when it ends, when it expires, we go from life to life. From this life to the next is how it's often talked about, right? We go from here, this earth, into the very presence of Jesus in an instant, never tasting death. I believe that. And I think we do a disservice when we, when we kind of just spiritualize it and say, well, Jesus is just talking about the spiritual reality. No, he's talking about deep reality, the truth of things, that in him is life. And when we believe in him, we don't have to taste death any longer. Death has no claims on us any longer. Jesus speaks true. The Jews say to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. And the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died also. Whom do you make yourself out to be? How arrogant are you, Jesus? You think you're better than Abraham and the prophets? The holy men of old, the greatest men who have ever walked the earth, and you're better than them? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. My Father, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him. But I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Jesus' response is this. They say, how arrogant are you, Jesus? That's the essence of what they say to him. And his response is to say, I don't make myself out to be anything. I am simply God's servant 
an agent of the Lord. I am the one who came in perfect humility. And we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that. Jesus, who is God, who is God, who has the right to claim all things, Jesus consistently, especially as we are focused on the Gospel of John, reading this Gospel, in John specifically, Jesus always, always talks about his obedience and his submission to his Father. In fact, he is the man uniquely suited to be perfectly obedient, to be perfectly dependent. Man, can you think of something that humans hate more than having to depend on other people? In our own self-sufficiency, in the, the thought that we're good enough and we're, we don't need anyone and we can make it on our own? That is antithetical to how we live as humans. Jesus, as God, he displays perfect dependence on God. And he is God. Jesus says, I'm not making myself out to be anything. I am here perfectly submissive, perfectly obedient, perfectly dependent. My Father is the one who glorifies me. My Father is the one who has given me this name. He's glorified me, and He will glorify me. And let me remind you what glory means in the Gospel of John. It means crucifixion. The glory that Jesus will receive from His Father is to be put on the cross. That's His glory. That's Jesus' glory. His Father will glorify Him. Remember, when we get to, to John 17, Jesus prays this beautiful prayer. And he says, The hour has come. Glorify me, my Father, that I may have the glory I had with you right before the beginning, right before he had come. With that same glory, he's going to be glorified again. But Jesus says the hour of his glory is the hour of his crucifixion. And so Jesus says, I don't glorify myself. My Father glorifies me. And I have to tell you, because I speak the truth, that I know him. Because I'm not a liar. And if I were to say I didn't know him, I would be a liar. And then he says this in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Jesus says, this great man, Abraham, that you talk about as your father, that you keep bringing up, he saw my day. And, and it's kind of a cryptic saying. It doesn't explain what it means. Maybe it means Jesus, excuse me, maybe it means Abraham had visions of this messianic age that would come through Jesus when he was alive. That could be, that could be possible that Jesus, uh, excuse me, that uh, Abraham had visions of Jesus. That's possible, of course. It could be that this idea of the seed, remember Abraham was promised a seed. We see that promise in Genesis uh, over and over again. And that rejoicing term is, is found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis when he's promised a son. 
Remember his son Isaac, and it says he rejoiced. He rejoiced. And, and Isaac, of course, is, is the symbol of Christ, isn't he? He's the seed of Abraham, which, of course, Paul is going to make a lot out of in the New Testament. But the seed of Abraham was actually Jesus. Right? Well, Isaac in, in Genesis is that kind of forerunner of Jesus. He looks like Jesus, and he, he stands in the place of, of, uh, of an example of Jesus. But, of course, Jesus is greater. And how, we, how do we know that? Well, we, we know Genesis 22, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, when Abraham takes his son up on Mount Moriah and is going to offer him as a sacrifice. And the Lord says, no. At the last minute, he says, no. I myself will provide the lamb. Right? Isaac, in that story, is standing in the place of Jesus. He's alluding to Jesus, who's going to come one day. Of course, the big difference is Isaac didn't die. And Jesus did fulfill the sacrifice. That could be another thing that, that Abraham's rejoicing, right, in seeing Jesus. It, it, he was seeing Jesus when he saw his son, his seed, and saw the revelation of what Jesus would do when he was going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. That could be what it's being referred to here. Whatever the case, the Jews are clearly not impressed with him saying that. The response is incredulous. They don't believe what Jesus just said. They say, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? And Jesus says this to them. Truly, truly, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Remember last week, we saw that in this, this chapter in John 8, in verse 24 and in verse 28, I think it is. Could be wrong. Jesus twice has already said, I am, and used that ego ami. Right? He said it twice already, and they don't really understand what he's saying. In fact, one of the times he says, I am, I am he. They go, who? Who, who are you? Right? They don't really get what he's alluding to. Now, this is the third time in this chapter he said it. And after all he said about his father and their father, after all he said about who he is, after all he said about Abraham, about Abraham rejoicing, they finally get it. They finally get the claim Jesus is making when he says that. Before Abraham was born, I am the divine name. Jesus is taking the name of divinity upon himself. He's taking the name of Israel's God and he's claiming that that name is his. Before Abraham was born, I am. And so what's the Jews' response? Do they respond like believers? Remember, this is the group that he was speaking to were those who believed in him. In verse 30. Those who believed in him, here he is, the I am. And they pick up stones to stone him. And Jesus went and hid and went out of the temple. 
And that's where our chapter ends. Jesus claims divinity explicitly, openly. And the Jews claim that he is a blasphemer, like Leviticus 24 says. And they pick up stones so that they can kill him. So that they can throw stones at him until he is dead. Because they believe he has blasphemed the name of the Lord. That he has claimed deity. And one thing is true. They are right. He has claimed divinity. He has claimed divinity. Now the question remains, is that claim true or not? And clearly, these who said they believed in him believe that claim is false. Or they wouldn't stone him. If it was true that he was God, if they believed it was true, they would have not stoned him. They would have worshipped him. But instead, the very incarnated presence of God is before them in the temple. And they pick up stones to stone their very God, their very Messiah. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. It says Jesus went and hid and left the temple. It doesn't say how he did it. Could it be he just ran? But it's an interesting illusion because Jesus, we know from John 1, is the very Word made flesh, right? The very presence of God. The, the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. And so we know Jesus is the very presence of God here on earth, in the temple, in front of the people who rightly should worship God. And they see him, they see the very presence of God in flesh, and they drive him out of the temple. He calls back to the presence of God leaving the temple in Ezekiel 8. God abandons the temple because of their sins in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. And here too, now we have a New Testament example where God's very presence flees the temple because the people don't believe and because the people have sinned against their God. And so we're left with this story of two fathers. Of two fathers. Of the Father, of God the Father, and of Satan. And the thing is, we're all in this camp until Jesus. Until Jesus, we're all children of Satan. And we have to ask ourselves, are we too proud to see that we are slaves? Are we too proud to come to the Son and recognize that we need freedom? You have to make that decision in your own heart. If you don't believe in Jesus today, you have to make that decision in your own heart of whether or not uh, you will be a child of God by believing in Jesus, in which he does make you free, just like he claims, and you can become a child of God, or whether you remain a child of the devil and live your life the way the devil would. Self-centered, lying, murderous, only looking out for your own good, 
That's the ways of the devil. But there is a way, there is a path, and that path is Jesus. And believing in him, that can make you a child of God. And for those of us who are children of God, who have believed, and the Son has set us free, let's remember the state we once were in. Let's remember the state we came from, that we too were once children of the devil, and let's not despise others who are still in that state. Because we know it is only by the grace of the Son that we were made free. And we're so grateful that he has the authority and name and initiative of his Father to do that for us. Thankfully, we too, who have believed in Jesus, can call God our Father tonight. And that is a privilege that I don't think we can even begin to ascertain the depth and privilege of that, to call God our Father. Let me bless you. Let me bless you as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we can even use that name, that title for you, that you are Father. That we were once slaves to sin, broken, defiled, pitiable. That we only looked out for ourselves and our own desires and our own wicked ways And yet in that condition, when we were that way, you saw us, had grace on us, and sent your Son with full authority and permission to free us. Lord, for those who haven't been freed, I pray that they would hear your word, that you would draw them to Jesus, Father, so that they can find freedom from their bondage. And for those of us who have believed, Lord, I pray you'd remind us of the privilege to call you Father. You'd remind us of the beauty of that, of the depth of reality of that. Would we not doubt that? Would we believe that sincerely and with true and deep belief that that you are our Father, that Jesus has truly made us free. And in whatever ways we stumble and go back to the old chains of, of this life, of the world, of the devil, would you free us even further by the power of your Spirit tonight and each day forward. May we look more like Jesus. Bless each person here. Bless each person on Zoom. Bless each person who would hear this message one day. We love you. We're grateful for your fatherhood over us. In Jesus' name and by your Spirit's power, amen. Amen. Amen.